I will begin with what will sound as the usual rhetoric, but this time I mean it seriously. It's an honor for me to be here, because I think that places like EMA shouldn't be treated just in this patronizing way from my comfortable home. I say, oh, you're suffering, I should help you, and so on. I have a mistrust of these big universities where they think they are the center of the world, big American European universities, but you meet very stupid people today. My worst experiences are at Princeton, Yale, and so on. So let me begin. In an old Soviet joke, a new arrival to Gulag, condemned to 10 years, is asked by other prisoners. What were you given 10 years for? The new arrival answer, for nothing. I'm guilty of nothing. I shout back at him, don't lie to us. Everybody knows here that for nothing, you get three years, not 10. There is, I think, a profound wisdom in this joke. In every social community, there is no neutral nothing. Every nothing has a price determined by those in power, which means that we are all, in some sense, a priori guilty, and that you have to work hard to get rid of this guilt and being given nothing. Why? Because we are free, but this freedom is necessarily ambiguous. I want to develop this ambiguity, which is not just linked to totalitarian regimes or whatever, but it's general, I think. With, I don't know how it works in your language, in Slovene we also can do it, namely what in English they have is two terms for freedom, freedom and liberty. I think they can be interpreted as the distinction between what Hegel, the abstract freedom and concrete freedom. Abstract freedom is the ability to do what you want independently of social rules and customs. You can even violate these rules and so on. Of course, exemplarily in a revolt, war, revolutionary situation. Concrete freedom is the freedom sustained by a set of rules and customs. My freedom is only actual as freedom within certain social spaces, regulated by rules and prohibitions. I can walk freely along a busy street because I can be reasonably sure that others on the street will behave in a civilized way towards me. That if they attack me or if they insult me, they will be punished. So let me take the case of freedom to speak and communicate with others. 
I can only exert this freedom if I obey the commonly established rules of language, with all their ambiguities and inclusive of the unwritten rules, messages between the lines. And to, this may be a particular, unimportant point, but I think it is crucial even to understand this politics. Putin is acting, how Russians are acting. Namely, I want now to refer to your everyday experience even. We all know that if you live in a community where you speak certain language, which is regulated by certain explicit rules, what you can do, what you cannot do, it's never as simple as that. Every community doesn't simply obey rules. You have deeper rules which tells you which rules not only you can violate a little bit, but which rules you are even expected to violate. Especially since you are in war now, in the army life, many things are prohibited, but de facto you expected to violate these rules. On the other hand, even more interesting for me, there are things that you are allowed to do, even solicited, but you are not expected to do them. For example, I don't know if in your country you have the same custom. Let's say that I Timothy to a restaurant. Let's say that maybe, I'm not even sure, I have more money than you, I invite you, so it's clear that I will pay. But in my country, when the bill arrives, you have to pretend for some time, no, no, I will contribute, let's share the money, and so on. It's a pure formality, because you are expected to say, okay, then you pay after, I don't know, 20 seconds. But this rule has to be obeyed. So what interests me immensely are along these lines are prohibitions which are themselves prohibited in the sense that you must obey them, but you are prohibited to state even the prohibition publicly. My popular example from Stalinism. In Soviet Union, there was not only prohibited to criticize publicly Stalin, of course. It was also prohibited to publicly say that it is prohibited to criticize Stalin. Imagine we are in a central committee session, I'm Stalin, somebody raises his hand and criticizes me. Okay, next day the question will be who's the guy to see him alive. But let's imagine then then somebody else, like you, Timothy, you stand up and say to this guy who attacked me, Stalin, are you stupid? Don't you know in our country it is prohibited to criticize Stalin? You will disappear even faster. I claim. You see the paradox. It was prohibited to criticize Stalin, but this 
prohibition itself had to remain secret. And I think that all our diplomacy today, even war moves, when Putin says something, so on, it's always done in this way that you always have to raise the question, what are the unwritten rules? Is it meant literally what he says? Uh, the problem today is that politicians often violate the unwritten rules. You know, that's the horror in the United States. Donald Trump was doing this. He usually didn't break the law, but it's part of a communal consensus that you do things in a certain way, manner. This is the substance of our lives. Now, let me go a step further concerning the army in this line of... We encounter here what I call inherent transgression. A social space is not just the space of what is permitted, but also the space of what is repressed, excluded from the public space, but simultaneously necessary for this public to reproduce itself. Let me ask, give you an example, a naive uh, question. Why does the army, in military, right, so strongly resist publicly accepting homosexuals into its rank? There is only one consistent answer, I think. Not because homosexuality poses a threat to the alleged patriarchal, phallic, or what, libidinal economy of the army. On the contrary, because the army community itself relies on uh, disavowed, repressed homosexuality, is the key component of the soldier's male bonding. I experienced this when, uh, 45 years ago, I was serving in the infamous Yugoslav People's Army. Strike me immediately. On the one hand, the army life was homophobic to the extreme. If somebody was discovered to be gay, he was beaten, humiliated by other soldiers before, after a week or so, being dismissed from the army. But at the same time, everyday army life was full of atmosphere of homosexual innuendos. Like I remember in my unit, when in the morning you met your another soldier, your friend, you never simply said, hello, good morning. In my unit, the expression to be used was in Serbo-Croat, Pushikurat, which means smoke my prick. And uh, this formula was so standardized, we even didn't pronounce it with a small obscene smile. It was just a pure act of politeness. So the point not to be missed here is that this fragile coexistence of 
extreme violent homophobia with publicly disavowed homosexuality bears witness to the fact that in a military community, only by censoring its own libidinal foundation, censoring, not eliminating it. <clears throat> so again, our space of concrete freedom is sustained by such ambiguous rules. My first point. My second point. The contours of freedom are, of course, historically variable. Uh, the predominant notion of freedom is always historically specific. To simplify to the utmost, in traditional societies, freedom does not refer to equality. Freedom means that each person should be free to play its specific role in the hierarchic order. In modern societies, freedom is linked to abstract legal equality and personal liberty. A poor worker and a rich employer of him are equally free. In 20th century, freedom was more and more linked to social circumstances which enable you to actualize it, freedom, minimal welfare, free education, and so on. Today, the accent is on the freedom of choice, which I think implies that we ignore how the very frame of choices is imposed on individuals. There are always some choices which are de facto privileged. And I think true freedom begins when you are allowed to question what is meant by freedom, not just fitting into freedom which is given to you. What this means is that at this very moment, and we are supporting Ukraine in its struggle for freedom, we should be attentive to what this freedom is or will be. As an opera lover, I remember the finale of the Act One of Mozart's Don Giovanni, which begins with Don Giovanni's powerful appeal to all present, Viva la Libertà, long live freedom. Repeated forcefully by all, the music gets stuck at this point of full engagement. But the catch is, of course, that although the entire group is enthusiastically unified around the call to each subgroup probably projects into libertà, freedom, its own dreams and hopes. And that's for me the problem. Imagine a situation of political unity where all sides are united under the sign of freedom. But every particular group projects a different meaning into its universality. Freedom for some means anarchic freedom outside 
the state law, for others, freedom of property, for others yet, social conditions which allow individuals to realize your potentials, and so on, and so on. So this is my question. Now in Ukraine, you are in that Don Giovanni state. You have an extraordinary unity. You are all crying like Don Giovanni, viva la libertà. But if, or more hopefully, when you will succeed in your struggle, you will face the truth. Which freedom should you finally enjoy? Should you just try to catch up with Western liberal democracy? I'm not sure. Western liberal democracy is now in a deep crisis. I don't think you should formula proposed Jürgen Habermas, who used this term in German, it's Nachholende, catch up revolution, that all you can do in post-communist East is to catch up with Western Europe. It's not bad to do this, but again, Western Europe is in a deep crisis now. And you know where I see the crisis? Think of movements Podemos in Spain, Yellow Vests in France. They formulate a certain discontent of population. But this discontent cannot be translated into the existing political system. This situation is very dangerous. So this, I, I'm afraid, will not be enough for you. Just let's become like Western Europe. Should you join the conservative populist axis of Poland and Hungary? I'm skeptical about this. So, uh, what, uh, what, what, sorry, uh, what then should you do? Well, first you are doing the right thing now. Back to Hegel. Hegel knew where this concrete freedom is. There are moments when abstract freedom has to intervene. What do I mean by this? Uh, sorry, I have here, I got an opinion poll. Okay, whatever, sorry, something up here. Okay, okay, let's go on. In the December 44 issue of The Atlantic, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote immediately after France was liberated. I quote Sartre. Never were we freer than under the German occupation. We lost all our rights. First of all, our right to speak. They, the Germans, insulted us to our faces. And that is why the resistance was a true democracy. For the soldier, for his superior, the same danger, the same loneliness, the same responsibility, the same absolute freedom within the discipline. This situation full of anxiety and danger was freedom, not liberty. Liberty was established when post-war normality returned. So in Ukraine today, you who fight the Russian invasion are free 
and you fight for liberty. The problem I see here, not with you, but in the West, is that more and more approaching a situation in which millions of people think that they have to act freely, violate the rules in order to protect their liberty, their social order. Remember, uh, on January 6, 2021, when a crowd of populist partisans of Donald Trump invaded the capital, sorry, the capital, they did a revolution. So we are in a mess. What is this mess about? The multiple crises and even apocalyptic projects prospects that we are facing today seem to evoke more and more ominously the four riders of the apocalypse from the book of Revelation. Plague, war, hunger, death. Although global awareness of the threat is growing, it is not allowed followed by adequate activity. So the four rider, riders are galloping faster and faster. First, plague. At the end of 2019, it exploded and changed our lives forever. And it is still here, and I think it will remain. We can expect other new waves or other pandemics. War. With the Russian attack on Ukraine, hot war in Europe, even if some kind of truce will be enforced, war forcefully asserted itself as a general condition of our lives, so that peace is just a temporary exception. We all want peace, but I'm here totally on your side against some of my pseudo-leftist Western friends. Abstract calls for peace are not enough. Peace alone is not a term which allows us to draw the key political difference. Occupiers always sincerely want peace in the ter territory they hold. Germany definitely wanted peace in the United France from 1940 till 44. Israel wants peace on the occupied West Bank. And Russia is, as they say, and in some stupid sense, it's true, in a mission for peace in Ukraine. But peace must be totally control the situation. That's why, as Etienne Balibar put it in an honestly brutal way, today, apropos Ukraine, pacifism is not an option. Yes, we should prevent a new great war. But the only way to do it is to engage in a total against the situation in which we are. The third rider of apocalypse, hunger, it's also on the horizon. I think the greatest scandal today, one of the, is what Russia is doing in Odessa now. You have millions of tons of grain in the third world, uh, third world people begin to starve and it's, it means hunger. Even more because of global warming, 
warming? Are we ready for mass migrations? There will be, I think, riots and so on. We are approaching very dangerous state. My last thought, right, the apocalypse, death. I don't mean here death in general. What has to say about death is what's said in my, my, uh, my favorite Polish graffiti from 40 years ago. It's the definition of life that I know. Life is a disease transmitted by sex, which always ends with death. But what I mean with death as a fourth rider is something much more radical. I've written about it. Uh, I mean the end of humanity as we, which is threatening us through the latest modes of digital control of our daily lives, especially the prospect of our of what some people call wired brain, neuralink, the direct link between our thinking processes and digital machines. This is not a utopia. It is already up to some level happening. And can you even imagine how this will change our lives. Even my thoughts will no longer be mine. And friends from China, who are not even afraid to email me, censor, are giving me so many data about this. How in some Chinese elementary schools, uh, uh, pupils only have to wear just a tiny ring around their head, which measures the brain activity, not thoughts. But the idea is that it shows on the teacher's computer if you are not actively following the class. That's the future. So what will happen? Will we still be human? In what sense will we be free? Isn't our basic freedom the freedom of thought in the simple sense that I may not mean you personally, Timothy, but I appear to be friendly to you, but who knows what do I think in my head? <laughs> That's, if I am deprived of this, in a way, I am deprived of a very distance between what goes in in myself and outside world. In a way, I am no longer human. So are we doomed? Do I have only bad news? No, because at the same time, we are free. Free in a radical sense of being able to change not only the future, but even our past. What do I mean by this? Let me begin with a quote from the great conservative poet T.S. Eliot. Quote, what happens when a new work of art is created is something that happens simultaneously to all the works of art which preceded it. The past should be altered by the present as much as the present is directed by the past. End of quote. What do we mean by this? Let's take the example of Shakespeare. A great staging of Hamlet Day is not just a new interpretation of the play. It, in a way, 
fills the empty spaces, the less in Shakespeare itself. Shakespeare didn't know fully what he is saying. The play is full of inconsistencies. So that's my idea. I don't have time to go into it now. I like a kind of the idea of a kind of unfinished ontology. The world is not fully here. So with every progress forwards, the meaning, not the fact. When you kill many people, it's a fact. But the meaning of the past changes. Uh, this is where ideology enters. And this is, of course, where you, Ukraine, enter. I will tell you how. I remember how many of you know this. I know a wonderful detail from the history of Darwinism. Darwin had a friend, uh, uh, deep uh, uh, a priest, who believed literally in the Bible, but at the same time saw the truth of Darwin's theory. So he had a problem. How to reconcile the proofs of the evolutionary theory, fossils and so on, which shows how life on Earth slowly developed in millions of years, and the Bible, which taken literally tells that the world was created about 4,000 years BC, before Christ. So if the world was created 4,000 years ago, how can we explain the fossils? Ah, the guy, the priest, I forgot his name, gave a wonderful answer. When God created the world, he directly created fossils as such. So that, you know, the way you create a movie set, a false background. He gave us a false opening. God created traces of an imagined past. This Christian solution, of course, is not true as a scientific theory, but it provides an adequate theory of ideology. Every ideology, in some sense, creates fossils. It does not create, it creates an imagined past which fits the present. And are we aware, these are details, how many of the things we identify today as our past were created in this retroactive way? For example, uh, my Scottish friend told me that, this how you call them kilt, the skirts were by men. They were invented in Scottish National Revival, early 19th century. Or, you know, the Vikings wearing uh, horns, or how do you put it in their, here, on their head. This was invented, this was even invented through opera stagings around 1820. We are always reinventing our past. Why am I losing time by this? Because politics works in the same time. With all the criticism of Chinese communism, I like how in 1953 in uh, Geneva, during the negotiations to end Korean War, a French journalist asked Chu Enlai, Chinese prime minister who was there, what does he think about 
the French Revolution. So and I replied, it is still too early to tell. In a way, he was right. When in Eastern Europe in 1990s, so-called people's democracies, communism, disintegrated, the struggle for the historical place of the French Revolution exploded again. Conservatives claimed that with the fall of communism, 1989, the entire era which began exactly 200 years ago in 1789 came at the end, the epoch of revolution. Is it true or not? It depends on what will happen. So again, in every historical conjecture, present is not only present, it also encompasses a perspective on the past, permanent to this present. After the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991, the October Revolution is no longer it's no longer perceived as the beginning of a new progressive epoch, but the beginning of a catastrophic misdirection of history, which reached its end in 1991. So why am I telling you this? Because I think, please be aware, you are, but I repeat it, in your struggle against Russian invasion, now you are not only trying to sustain the space for your future, you are trying to, what is at stake is also your past. You know, Walter Benjamin, great Marxist, a good one, said that in every revolution, what is to be redeemed is also the past progressive attempts. In the same sense, you are now trying to redeem your past. If you lose, your past will be rewritten by the winners and you will be evoked with some sympathy maybe, but ah, you know that have disappeared nation which tried to... You are fighting for your past. Of course, now, let's go on, more and more complex. Think, uh, don't be too bored, things will get more different, more uh, interesting now. But this change of the past, of course, happens only at the level of symbolic space. Brutal reality cannot be changed. But this opens another paradoxical position. What about necessity or fate, which can realize itself only through being known. That's our danger today. What do I mean is, I'm sorry if this is known to some of you, uh, my favorite, this paradoxical story, it's uh, an ancient Arab story about the appointment in Samara. It was retold by William Somerset Mom and many other writers. Here is the story. I'm sorry if you know it. 
on an errand in the busy market of Baghdad, meet death there. Terrified by seeing death, he runs home to his master and asks him to give him a horse so that he can ride all the day and reach uh, quickly Samara, another city in the north of Iraq, where death will not fight him. The good master not only gives the servant a horse, but goes himself to the market after for death, finds death, and shouts at death. Why did you scare my faithful servant? Death replies, but I didn't want to scare your servant. I was just surprised about what was he doing here in Baghdad when I had an appointment in Samara with him tomorrow. So the message of this story is a beautiful one. It's not that man's demise is impossible to avoid, that trying to twist free of it will only tighten the grip of death, but rather the exact opposite. What if you knowing about your fate and trying to avoid it is how what you think your fate realizes itself. Should I even know it, the best-known example, Oedipus. You know how it all begins. Parents of Oedipus are told, your son will marry his mother, kill his father. So to get rid of this, they send him away. And then, then this is how it happens. Oedipus wanders around, kills a man not knowing it's his father, and so on, uh, and so on. The paradox is that if the parents of Oedipus were to say, okay, if it happens, it happens. Who cares about prophecy? Nothing would happen. There would be, there would be no Oedipus, uh, no Oedipus uh, uh, complex, and so on, and so on. <clears throat> Here again, you in Ukraine, we're doing the right thing. Now, I'll say, what has this to do with Ukraine? I don't know how it is with you, but even among leftist liberals in the West, it was popular to say, yes, it's nice, you try to resist, but basically, look, all of it, you don't have a chance. You are lost. And no, you said, okay, maybe this is our fate, but we behave as if we don't know our fate. We fight. I will return to this later. Uh, but I think that we are caught in this paradox today. That how we know what is awaiting us. Media are telling us all the time, ecological crisis, global warming, viruses. But precisely through knowing it <clears throat> and not reacting seriously to it, the fate actualizes itself. This is why, permit me to quote my good friend Adrian Johnston and how he characterized today's geopolitical situation. A long quote. He wrote, today we are in a situation in which the world's societies and humanity as a whole are facing multiple acute crises, global pandemic, environmental disasters, 
massive inequality, poverty, wars, and so on, yet seem unable to take measures necessary to resolve the crisis. We know things are broken. We know what needs fixing. We even sometimes have ideas about how to fix things. But nevertheless, we keep doing nothing, either to mend damage already done or to prevent further damage. Uh, so we are, in some sense, stuck. Why? Uh, the model of this stuckness was, uh, remember, half a year ago, when uh, the Glasgow Conference on Global Warming. Yeah, they were saying all the right things, but nothing followed. There is a lesson I will later return of this. Uh, I think the paradox is that in Western capitalism, we are hyperactive and we are in an apathy precisely because things are happening so fast that we cannot make a step back and reflect on things. We are a little bit like compulsive neurotics. Believe me or not, I know what this means because I am one of them. Compulsive neurotics talk all the time, not because they want to say something, but yes, Jennifer, I'm afraid of you, but that if they stop talking for a second, others will see that, that all I'm saying is bullshit and ask me the serious question. You know, this hyperactivity where you are active not to achieve something, but precisely to make it sure that nothing has changed. And in Western Europe, what this means is that ideology functions more and more in a cynical way, which means to quote Peter Sloterdijk's formula of cynicism, I know what I'm doing, but I'm nonetheless doing it. Knowing what we are doing doesn't prevent us from going on doing it. I don't know how much you were in earlier happy, happier times part of it, but the true horror for me was, are I hate them. You know, this big art biennales. Venice, Venezia, Kassel, I know that a paradox. Their program is always the most radical critique of capitalism. Today's societies are codified, we have to fight it, and so on. But it doesn't matter. This same Biennales perfectly fit capitalist self-reproduction. In socialism, it can be the same. With you, those who are old enough to remember the horror of Soviet Union, probably like this, but in ex-Yugoslavia, when I was young, we had the ideology of self-management socialism. But the condition for this ideology to function was not to take it seriously. I had a guy who was a naive communist. He thinks self-management, good idea, workers should really take over. He lost his job at Central Committee because he was considered dangerous. My God, he takes things seriously, then he will become a dissident if you take things seriously, and so on and so on. Now, 
The last metaphysical point, and then slowly I'm coming to the end. Uh, this totally cynical functioning is a moment, I think, of what the Korean, uh, South Korean, of course, social theorist, who is now popular in the West, Byung Chul Han, observed, observed very well as the, he calls it, get, getting pathological of our collective rituals. We no longer know how to uh, mourn properly. We just have neurotic private ceremonials, confessional experiences, and so on. We no longer are able to do uh, ritual acts, which include feelings, but not feelings of isolated individuals. It's kind of objective, collective feeling. This agency is what Lacan calls big other, the social substance. And it's extremely important. What do I mean by this? One more example. To understand this, I would like to remind you, maybe some of you know, uh, the notion elaborated by my good friend, Austrian philosopher Robert Faller, the notion of interpassivity. What is interpassivity? Something beautiful, I think. Remember so-called weepers. You still find them in south of these. Uh, these were, in traditional societies, women you paid to cry for you, to do the mourning for you. It's beautiful. You can stay at home, watch pornography, whatever. If your father dies, no. You are doing the mourning through others. Even to go more into the past, I always admired in Tibet, they have this... Uh, Praying wheels, you know, you write a prayer, you put it into a small wheel, you turn it around mechanically, and it counts as if you are praying. It doesn't matter what you are doing, thinking about sex or what, you are praying. Now I come to the crucible. You will say, but okay, this goes only in primitive societies. No, my, I think the biggest contribution of United States of America to 20th century culture is something it, that's called, I think, cat laughter. You know, you watch a TV series, comic, and laughter is part of the soundtrack. You know what's the mystery of this? I remember when I was uh, doing this uh, uh, I returned to home that tired. I look at the TV screen and I was too tired to laugh, but the TV screen laughed for me and I felt relaxed as I have laughed. This is something wonderful. The, uh, that's why interpassivity. The other is not acting for you. The other is even taking over the passive experience for you. Uh, and I think that we are, again, less and less able to have these proper rituals where the big other is involved. And, uh, and that's, I think, a very 
dangerous thing. Uh, did you see, it was well before the war, I hope it was shown there, the movie, it's not a great movie, but somehow it was interesting, Don't Look Up, where Meryl Streep plays the president. There, you have the, a strange figure of the other who doesn't know for me. They all know catastrophe is real. Some comet is approaching her, the end of life. But they go on as if they don't know it, although they personally know it. This is more and more our, our situation. So now, really, to conclude very fast, uh, 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 this big other is slowly disintegrating. Let me give you another tragic example of big other. It happened to a, to a girlfriend of a friend of, of a friend of mine. She, uh, no, it was the other way around, sorry. Boyfriend of her. She wanted to become a woman. And she went through all the painful surgical procedures. And uh, all her friends supported her. Everything seemed okay. Then on a certain day, she got from municipal city authorities a note saying, you are now officially a man. She killed herself instantly. You know, like, it was, as long as it was her private thing, it was okay. The moment it became registered by social authority, it was over. Uh, okay, I don't want to go over time because I wanted here to speak briefly about Elon Musk, who to you did good things, but what, uh, 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 but, uh, but the way he wants to privatize Twitter is very dangerous. I just want to end up with a just end up with a little in a little bit more optimist way. I think that all is not so dark precisely because in situations that you are now, when in a way freedom, free choice and necessity overlap, this is the true freedom, much more than the freedom of choice. Let me mention the biggest, mention the biggest example, love. If there is a free choice, it is instead of a love object. You cannot order somebody to fall in love. But once you are in love, you experience love as your fate. You don't have a choice. And I wonder if you would agree. My idea is that you never fall in love in the present. All of a sudden, you discover you already are in love. That's why you also never know the reason why you, fall in, why you fall in love. The moment you can say, okay, this lady or man has nice legs, nice, eye, uh, nice, legs, nice eyes, other talks nicely, and so on, and you make a choice, it's not love. So uh, love is a wonderful example of how uh, it's a free choice, but free choice, which is at the same time a deep, the deepest necessity. And my point 
Your struggle is now the same one. Of course, in some formal sense, you have the choice. I will fight or not. But admit something. It's not the same choice as when you go to a sweet store, shall I get a, shall I get a strawberry cake or a chocolate cake? It's a choice where if you choose to fight, you choose it because you know that you cannot do it otherwise. You know, it's this radical choice where you realize that I wouldn't be able to live with myself with not doing it. I think that today, just the conclusion now, this is what all we in Europe should learn from you. It's not just this superficial freedom of choices. Choice is not just that you click like it, not like it. The deepest choices are doing freely what you have to do. So what can we in Europe learn from you? During the first weeks of the war, we in Europe feared that Ukraine will be quickly crushed. But now we have to admit that our real fear exactly the opposite one. That Ukraine will not be crushed, that the war will just go on and on. And I'm here very critical. I spoke with many people who said, oh, the tragic fate, uh, Ukraine will not be able to resist and so on. Uh, but uh, secretly, this was, I wouldn't say directly their desire, but that expectation, wouldn't it be nice? You are crushed, you are no longer there, and then we can, of course, go through all the hypocrisy of mourning, you know. We would write wonderful books, but or texts, what, what, how tragic was your fate, and so on. But it will be over. After a couple of years, we would make new peace with Russia or whatever. And you, I mean this as extreme love, although I, uh, it will sound vulgar, you screwed it up for us. You simply resisted, where secretly you were not expected to resist. That's the, that was the hypocrisy of the West. What should have been good news, a smaller nation unexpectedly resisting brutal invasion is now something that we don't know what to do with it. And here I am ashamed of some leftist colleagues of who play pacifism and warn against, like Jürgen Habermas did, about Ukraine morally blackmailing Europe, about the danger of returning to heroic military spirit. I think that the lesson of the war is that this golden era of Europe, where we could afford pacifism because we were under nuclear umbrella by the United States, it's over, and uh, pacifism means just more and more compromises. I'm especially horrified by the insight proposed by some of my leftists' friends. 
when they say that they oppose the war, they sympathize, everybody sympathizes with Ukrainians, but they say they oppose the war because NATO is in the war just for economic capital reasons to further develop and strengthen the of its military industrial complex. And basically what NATO is saying, what these leftists are saying to you is, uh, okay, resist somehow Russian aggression, but not with arms, because if you use Western arms, you support American military industrial complex. It's a model of hypocrisy. So I think this melancholic apathy of Europe is running out of its time. Heroic acts will be needed again. Not just what you taught us. Military mobilization, but also mobilization to cope with ecological catastrophes, hunger, and so on, and so on. I agree that we should resist the temptation of glorifying war as an authentic experience and so on. But I think what we need today is not just military mobilization, but a general mobilization. There are serious dangers. So now I come back to my beginning, the price of nothing. Uh, we should be aware that we will have to pay a heavy price for nothing, which means our liberty. And we will have to pay it by accepting that there is no return to old normality. We are entering new era. And here I see what you Ukrainians are doing for Europe. You will, I hope, push us to awaken from the melancholic apathy and makes us accept the necessity of a new mobilization. Not just or even primarily mili military mobilization, but again, old normalization is over. We have again fight for our liberty to redefine our liberty. So, we should totally drop this idea that you are some kind of unfortunate exception. Let's just impose some peace, not pushing Putin too far. No, I think in a way, although I don't always agree with him, but here your Zelensky, sorry, uh, 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 yes, Zelensky was right when he said that uh, you are fighting for Europe, not in this cheap sense, just defending Europe, but uh, in your fate, the fate of Europe will be decided. And I don't mean just this cheap uh, beating Russia and so on. It's that Europe has to be awakened from its melancholic apathy, where we are not really to act. And we should be grateful to you to remind us of this, that freedom, real freedom hurts. Real freedom is not 
I go to a, again, a candy store, strawberry cake or other. Freedom means accept the necessity to do something to maintain your freedom. That's the lesson you are giving to Europe. And that's what I'm afraid many in Europe don't want to hear. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, a lot of questions. Uh, before we get to all of the questions, there's so many of them from our colleagues in Ukraine. I wanted to ask you about this point you made about love. Yeah. And if you could relate this, at the end, you, you related this concept, this idea you have of love and this idea of love as freedom, if I understood this correctly, to Ukraine. Because you are, I think, in the same situation, I defined love very formally as freedom in necessity. You are not free in Love. Love can I be vulgar, but in a loving way. Love is a catastrophe. Imagine you are a free man and woman. You an evening, you drink with friends, you go to a movie, maybe a one-night stand here and there, and then you fall passionately in love. All your life is ruined, you know. That's why I like Western love, not Oriental love. Oriental love is this stupid Buddha smile. You know who I love all of you. No, love is exclusive. I love you and I don't care if what happens to the world. So in some sense, love is characterized by this, that you experience as the highest freedom doing what you cannot not do it. And isn't this what your fight is about? It's not a simple choice. L like, let's say I'm a vulgar, there are many, an example, Ukrainian who says, okay, I had a relatively good life here, let's see, it is worth or not, should I rather go out, let's measure the profit, the losses. No, you fight because it's not simply because you have to do it. I would rather say because you cannot not do it. That's the ethical stance. In this sense only, in this sense only, and this, this is why, incidentally, I'm almost, although I'm still radical leftist, a conservative today in the sense that uh, 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 conservative in the sense that I think that uh, I think that uh, how there is something very beautiful my French friend Alain but you uh, invented in the expression do you have your language we don't have it but in French they have it in English they have it. we use the verb to fall in love to fall very important which means you don't plan it you fall into it and you don't know even why. All of, and in this sense, love is like authentic religion. In authentic religion, Kierkegaard, my favorite theologist, said in a beautiful way that it's an obscenity to say, I compare different religions, oh, arguments for Christianity sounded best to me, so I decided to be Christian. No. You can understand 
reasons for being a Christian only when you already believe in it. And with love, it's the same. You see why you fell in love, but once you are already in love, I say her smile is wonderful. Yeah, but it appears wonderful to me when I'm already in love, you know. So I think that that I like in love precisely its non and universal scope. No, you don't love all the world. This is what totalitarians are saying, you know, like you are too young to remember when the DDR communist regime fell apart, Erich Milke, the horrible minister, chief of secret police, came to the parliament and said, ich liebe euch alle, you know. When they say, I love you all, it always means except the traitors who have to liquidate, to be liquidated, so that we are really all. Okay, Sorry. so now, so I, I'm going to have to interrupt you because we have uh, many questions, and that was my prerogative hey, to ask it. you. Okay, so, so, but now the interrogation begins, so um, uh, we have now a question. Now we are end of humanism, we are at uh, uh, KGB. Yes. Okay. We, we did love, now we're on to the, the fun stuff, right? Uh, love is a catastrophe. This is the uh, this is the part you came for. So this is from Babel, a Ukrainian media outlet, and they asked this following question: They want to know about your work with Russia today. They said that uh, you use the Russian media to interrogate the West with critical questions, but don't you think that RT is a bad company not because they're Russians, but because they're propagandists? Who is performing specific information tasks of the Russian authorities? And they used your popularity, your reputation, and your words for their own benefit. So can you tell the truth and fight for the truth, but your words Maybe. still be used to build lies? Uh, sorry. Yes. Okay, I, I see your point. Let me just <clears throat> point out a couple of things here. It was a very risk strategic. It goes without saying that from January on, when I see where things are going, I stopped all collaboration with them. Not only this, <clears throat> already before, whenever there was a point, I took stance against Russia. Example, in my book, I forgot which one, is it uh, the, uh, the end of time? Okay, in one of my many books, I have a whole chapter on Maidan, Ukraine against uh, Russia. And me, maybe this is be another provocation for you, for you Ukrainians. I point out already then, Putin's nervousness with Lenin. Did you notice then on, on the 23rd of February, when Putin announced invasion of Ukraine, he mentioned critically only one name, Lenin. He said this upper stupidity, Lenin invented, imagined Ukraine. First, I know it was not true. If from 1917 till 21 or when too, there were attempts at independent Ukraine and so on and so on. And I'm not blaming. Uh, he did many horrible things. But one, he was well aware that great Russian nationalism is the main danger. So he took seriously Ukrainian cultural autonomy. That's why Putin 
uh, displays on the parade. Okay, but let's not get lost to my point. So again, I I was clear there. Then, whenever there was a problem with Rasa, they had, uh, I forgot the name, one philosophical journal where the guys were arrested. I did a video for them. When Bush Riot was there, I gave a talk in Moscow at that scandal point supporting them, and so on and so on. So I, uh, I, I'll put it like this. I knew the very risky thing that I was doing. But, uh, so I was very careful. Okay, I will ask my critics. I know the point. Nonetheless, allow them to use you. But show me, uh, there is not one sentence which I would uh, change today. In it, Like, I agree with all. It was risky, but listen, let me tell you something. Now, now comes the bad part. Do you know, don't overestimate Western liberalism. You are, it's much better, of course, than, than authoritarian. But this is why the limits are all the more mysterious. There are more or less the limits in the style of uh, what I mentioned in my talk as prohibited they say nothing is prohibited. Just try. Yeah, it was doxa. Yes. I made a video for them. I even allowed them to, I told them, they proposed me to go to Russia and have a public debate with big prosecutor. He, with the one who was prosecuting them, it didn't come to South. No, things are here. Uh, uh, absolutely clear. My despair was this one. I myself was in the last, I would say, 10 years, gradually simply censored, excluded from the big Western media. I remember 10 years ago, every two, three months, New York Times uh, 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 invited me to do a coed for them, Guardian and so on. Now I was slowly pushed out. Why? Because of my critique of political correctness uh, and so on, the whole series of things. I will not go through them. But uh, 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 now, now uh, two days ago, a text, of course, very proclaimed, uh, uh, appeared in Guardian, but bigger US, not Guardian UK, I'm still prohibited. And the, it's a crazy paradox, the hypocrisy of the Western left, that you know which were media in the West that were ready to publish me. Die Welt in Germany, which is center-right, and Spectator in UK, which is again center-right. And I'm more convinced that there are certain prohibited, certain topics which simply they don't pass in the West. You, for example, you know that for very moderate con criticism of West Bank politics of Israel, I was proclaimed even point the main anti-Semitic uh, philosopher in Europe and so on. So again, don't underestimate a much more subtle 
censorship in the West. Yes, you can publish what you want in marginal media and so on. But I took great risks, I admit it, and now I promise you it's over. I, okay. It's absolutely over. And I, incidentally, if you want the other side of the story, now many leftists attack me, attack me as proto-fascist, pro-US imperialist. So then, speaking how can you do this? Look for yeah, sorry. So speaking okay, of sorry, youth attacks, sorry. speaking of youth attacks, you spoke about. Uh, this is another question from uh, from Babel, the Ukrainian media. I know Chomsky um, and so on. Yes, Chomsky, Mearsheimer, how they've criticized the U.S. so much, and they've completely forgotten about what's happened in Russia, even after 2014. And so, partly because of this, the war was a surprise. The growth of military hysteria in Russia was simply missed by them. What do you think about them? How can we say that Russia's threat was underestimated? I think the two, first, I totally disagree with them here. I don't think they see the global geopolitical meaning of what Putin wants now. It's not, they say it more and more openly. It's not about Ukraine. They, okay, it is immediately, but what is, sorry, not matter. What is really about this war is to, to destroy Western European way of life. And they're even getting ready here for a pact with the United States. Remember that. Putin and Trump, that's why they were doing so well, have the same spirit uh, towards united Europe. I mean, uh, Trump ideologist Steve Bannon and Putin's Dugin, they always give the same message to Europe. Yes, long live France, long live Germany, just long not united Europe. But I think, as a radical leftist, that the model of united Europe, when different nations meet and coordinate their acts, not because of some uh, narrow ethnic ideology, but because of the common interest, global warming survival, is what we all need. It's what we all need. And Russia is now already offering this Pact to United States. One of their minor philosophers even wrote in a very arrogant interview that with some Italian medium that Europe is over. The end goal of this operation is to split Europe. Uh, England, maybe France, are American, all other, especially Germany. We take it. Then, you know what shocks me? What shocks me is this open, openly proto-fascist and theological background. You know, my ex-leftist friends, it's not only Chomsky, I also had Yanis Varoufakis and so on, you know. They, I think, behind their mind is one syllogism, one reasoning, which is something like this. Uh, the main enemy today is American imperialism. So whoever 
is an obstacle to American imperialism, it cannot be all bad. You know, like this automatic sympathy. Then I tell them, but look, look their ideology. Look, not so much Dugin, he is a clown. Look, Ivan Ilyin, who in the 20s criticized a little bit Western fascism because he said it's not authentic enough. He said the greatest tragedy was the loss of the white counter-revolution because they would have been authentic fascists. So Putin, and you know that Ilyin is now half an official figure, his books are reprinted and given to all military conscripts and so on and so on. So I am not uh, reading between the lines that Putin is a fascist. I very naively read his ideologists. They are openly this. And when people tell me, what about that Azov group and so on? No, I tell them, okay, I don't know, but I know a lot through friends about the true horror which is Wagner group in Russia. It's a whole private army which is already operating all around the world. That's what we know in ex-Yugoslavia. It's not just you, Ukraine. Uh, Wagner group members are already in the Republika Srpska in that part of Bosnia. They are getting ready to trigger disorder to get Kosovo back to Serbia and so on. It's a plan, and it's a plan for new globalization, where I think uh, uh, Medvedev, yeah, Medvedev proposed a formula where he says this will be an egalitarian globalization where we will not try to impose on others our values, but will be pragmatically, pragmatically respectful towards others. I say, yes, we have seen what this means. You remember when Taliban won in, uh, in, in Afghanistan, they immediately made peace with China. This brutal, pragmatic peace, the deal was, you, China, tolerate us in Afghanistan, we don't care what you do with Uyghurs there. Sorry, I stopped. Everybody I made peace with the Taliban, though. All of the neighbors made peace with the Taliban, including Russia, um, the including other Iran. Hand, you know, the big question still is, what did they do wrong? Do wrong Americans there that after 20 years or how much of occupation they, that it, for it all fell yes. apart? And we'll way. invite you for another talk on this topic. But before we, we continue on the Taliban, I want to ask you about Timothy Schneider. Uh, we've I had I'm stupid. I don't even, don't kill me. I'm not bluffing. When he says Russia is a fascist regime, I agree with him. But what more did he say? I don't know. So we it's have okay. a question about this term, Russianism. Do you think this is a new ideology? You've talked about how Russia wants to destroy uh, Europe wants to destroy the United States, wants to destroy this European ideology or European way of life. What is the replacement for it? They offer as a replacement, it's clear, uh, uh, what they call, they call respect and tolerance, 
which basically means supporting local authoritarian regimes, even military help, because never underestimate the fear. That's why Russians are especially mad at Ukrainians now revolution. That's why Putin, Russia reacted, you remember, in such a panic when demonstration in Belarus began and when was Azerbaijan or where and so on. No? And you know what is so interesting? This is the most obscene point that Russia and especially especially China, this was for me the best point of China. You remember when they, there were demonstrations in Hong Kong? Ch- uh, Chinese big ideologists wrote in their official newspaper a very interesting text where he said, what you are triggering now in Hong Kong, it will return to you. Look what is happening with Podemos in Spain, in France. You know what was so crazy there? He did not talk about socialism versus capitalism. He directly referred to the solidarity of those in power. You know, like, don't play triggering disorder here, you will get it. It's incredible. This, uh, also, sorry, another point. If you have any doubts, look, my God, who are Putin's friends in the West? The only ones he systematically supports are extreme right. Alternative für Deutschland, uh, 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 Marine Le Pen, and so on and so on. It's absolutely uh, uh, Salvini and those right-wingers in, 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 uh, in Italy and so on. I, I, now there is, we can go into theoretical debate. Is this really... Fascism. Okay, it's a specific fascism because don't forget, Nazism is not the only fascism. Even in Franco Spain, in with Mussolini, a certain minimal plurality was allowed. You know, fascism is not this Nazi only death. So I think yes, it's really yeah, to give you a story which you will like. I was in China, now it's suspicious, no, 10 years ago, and they no longer use uh, the term communism, in, now they prefer the term society. And they, then I asked them, listen, I'm an idiot, Western, naive, I don't get it. Could you simply explain to me what do you mean by harmonious society. And they told me it means a society where every part, individual, is at its own place and does his, her specific work. Woman is a good mother, worker a good worker, teacher a good teacher, manager a good manager. No. And I said, now I understand it. There are no multicultural disagreements. We in Europe, we call this corporate fascism. <laughs> that is there's to no, say, you no allow room. capitalism. There's no room for love Sorry? in the story. There's no room for love in that story, I think. Uh, it's more perverted because I am for love in this crazy, radical way. But precisely these countries 
affirm a certain perverted political love for the leader. So I claim where the basis of uh, the basis of politics is love for the leader, like in North Korea today. Beware, beware. That's why I don't like authentic. That's why can I say a thing? It will maybe surprise you about Zelensky. You hear a lot, many of these stupid remarks, you know. Uh, he was an actor, he acted president. I love this idea. For me, true ethical greatness is not you become, you look deep into yourself, you become what you are. No, true greatness is you adopt a certain mask role and you play it to the end, to death. I remember listening an interview with Zelensky where he said openly, even at the beginning of his presidency, he felt a little bit like I am acting, no? But when Russian threat began and war, he said just a wonderful expression, something like, now I have to play it for the real. Now I have to fully identify with it. That's heroism today. I don't believe in this look deep in yourself. If you look deep into yourself, or me in myself, you discover a lot of it usually. We all have our dirty secrets and so on. No, true heroism is I adopted a certain role authentically and I'm ready to play it to the end. Okay, so we have a really good question along these lines about your expectations about what's going to happen in Europe after this war. That many people, this is from Alexander Kravchuk, um, many people suspect that many Western leftists are disappointed and disappointed supporters are not being able to overcome the old confrontation lines between NATO and the USSR or Russia. Could this war be an impetus for the development of new universal alternatives for the world. Oh my God, this is a very difficult and serious question. Because what I am unfortunately also, uh, uh, with regard to all the reactions of hatred against me, what I'm seeing is that on the opposite, this war, gave this, I call them you know, like the main thing today is to fight our, our military establishment. They really believe war exploded because a military establishment uh, put pressure on American politics to, to engage itself, to support. But on the other hand, I think it's even the opposite. Do you remember when Putin announced the invasion? Do you remember first Biden's reaction, which was, I think, even too soft? He did something horrible. When they asked him, what about sanctions now? Lock notes. He said, well, let's see what kind of evasion. Will it be limited? Or in other words, he offered Putin a way out. Why don't you grab just Donbass down there and then we can make a deal? And Putin didn't accept that. 
So, uh, so I, I, I don't, uh, I don't believe these vulgar pseudo-Marxists who do this direct economic reductionism. It's really about profiteering and so on. You know, they are. I think they are a new stage of these conspiracy theories. You know. First, it was COVID. It's a conspiracy by the big companies. You know the story. Bill Gates wants to put chips in all of us and so on. Then, uh, then, uh, then uh, now it's, ah, then it's global warming. They claim it's a pseudo problem. It's just another way for big capital to control us. Now it's the war. And do you know it will interest you that? From my sources in these crazy circles, I was told they are already preparing a third paranoia conspiracy theory that those in power will invent contact with aliens. As now it's an emergency state all around the world, we have to have uh, global discipline and so on and so on. Again, that's another reason for me to support Ukraine, all these conspiracy theories, and you have different versions. One is American establishment. The other one is it's all a secret deal between Biden and Putin. It's really even a serious war. It's a deal between Biden and Putin to, <clears throat> to screw Europe, to destroy Europe. Incidentally, here, not that I believe in it, but there may be a tiny element of truth in the sense that there are strong circles in the United States, again, as already said, who don't like United Europe. That's why, as a leftist progressive, I think, now it's the time to fully return to uh, United Europe. But what will happen? Sorry, answering the question. I simply don't know enough, and I worry a lot. I think, as I wrote in my last text, that the first thing that Western Europe should do is stop this obsession with Putin, like, you know, uh, did we go too far? Did we cross the red, the red line or what? You know, like worrying all the time. No, first we should be aware that, my God, Putin crossed the red line. I'm ready to buy everything even. I stay, say to friends who tell me, but Ukraine did some not nice things in Donbass, prohibited Russian. I said, okay, I don't know, but wait a minute. We are talking now about a superpower attacking fully another country. If this is not crossing the red line, then I don't know what this means. So I think that, that first, the only way to stop Russia is to be not in the sense of dropping bomb, but to prevent global war. The West also should shoot red lines. Like when I agree here, we do all, even offer uh, Russians that you control the ships, but that grain has to go out of Odessa. You know also why, I warn you, that's what really worries me. Don't underestimate, a warning to Ukrainians, the success of Russian propaganda in Africa, Asian countries, 
Latin America and there, even Serbia and so on. And that's why this gesture would have been very wise going to the end, red line, the grain must go through Odessa port going out, because this would be a gesture which would also be had to be perceived as a gesture for the starving people in the third world and depicting Russians as those who are really prepared. Because Russians are now playing this game. You know, they even proclaim this is an obscenity that they are decolonizing Ukraine. That after Maidan was Western colonial occupation of, of Ukraine. You know, don't forget Asia, Africa. I think that this is absolutely clear that this is the Russian plan. It's simply new glo global order, new globalization. Absolutely. So I would enough to protect Ukraine. We will have a European fortress. But we saw in Belarus what horrors they are able to do, like infiltrating refugees and so on there. It, they will be extremely brutal here in provoking crisis in Western Europe with emigrants and so on and so on. Okay, I think uh, Timothy Brick is our time up. Just are you now for the serious? lecture or in, in Sorry, Is he your, your husband or are you really uh, we are siblings. siblings. Yes, yeah, somehow. Yes, well, spiritually. Yes, we're soulmates. Exactly. We're soulmates. We're soulmates. We will we will figure it out. I, I have my <laughs> theories. I have my theories. We yeah, need yeah. To, to do some historical research. But anyway, thank you a lot. Thanks a lot for your time, for your you know energy. And for answering all these questions, we will have some polls for the audience. So the audience, please, you can stay for a second or two and uh, answer some of these questions if you want to be engaged. But, uh, you know, I, I think I think we had a very productive and but fun conversation. A, yeah, yeah. a very brief final statement. You know what is Absolutely. my message? Don't fall into this trap of... Uh, the left parts of the left are pro-Putin, so uh, the left is to be weak. There is still quite a lot of left. Look at Paul Mason in the UK and others who are real leftists and absolutely pro-Ukraine. So uh, don't write off the left. Remember that there is a guy here, our common enemy, who is Whatever he is, my God, he is not a leftist in any sense and doesn't also claim to be a leftist. Don't write left off too quickly, because especially if, pray to God, you will survive free, you will need not this humiliating support, but my God, you know, you will need to be included quickly into developed world, and let's hope that you will not get the worst of Europe, just uh, uh, exploitation and so on and so on. You will need leftist friends. But I agree with you when you say, now it's the time for the left to prove, you know, to prove that they are really 
for you. Because again, it's horrible how all these stories, you know, like I tell them, for example, yes, that Azo charismatic leader, but in the elections he got one 1.3%. No, that guy of your extreme, right? And then I told them, okay, even if it's two, three percent, but in every West European country, left, uh, sorry, the radical right is getting more. And they okay. always mention you. So I'm going to have to interrupt you now because our friends in Kiev have to go. But one final question, and it's a very short question. Are you going to visit Kiev soon? As soon as possible. Okay, excellent. And then, we'll, and then we'll have you in Pittsburgh. I would love to. I would love to. I would even, if I have to fly somewhere and then with the train, I'm an old lover of trains. I like trains so much, you know. You know why? Because I'm totally alienated. I like to see the countryside through the window of a train when you can then type your note. I'm not interested in nature. Nature is for me something that you look through the through the window, you know. Yes, we have so excellent I would, trains. I definitely yes, we'll, we'll, we'll get you on the train. So on. It's done. It's written. We will put you on a train and you're coming to Kiev soon. So thank you, Professor. It was a I'm true honor. Very grateful to you. I hope I wasn't too uh, conf confused and so on, you know, because, sorry, just one thing which is important, uh, really the last one. You know what's so important when people say, now it's war, what philosophy can do now? But are we aware that now, apropos Ukraine, we all have to do with questions, my God, which are really philosophical questions. What is freedom today? How can we organize our freedom? Are we free? And so on. It's a unique situation where even common people need philosophers to at least clarify things and so on. It's for me as a philosopher the best time to live in. I just you know what's my fear? Have a sentence. My fear is I worry about this. <clears throat> now they, they have this brutal butcher from Syria, General the Russians, no? <clears throat> that they will just slowly, slowly burn villages, go up, you know? I hope they will be somehow stopped or let's hope the optimist reading is that they want just to get some territory tend to start some kind of negotiations or whatever, you know. I still worry. Don't be too optimistic. I don't think you have already won. You know what I mean? The danger is still there. But I love your cities. I love Lviv. I like Har Kharkiv, Kiev. I, I love the country. I love the country and... Not there is one very sad racist prejudice that you Ukrainian having beautiful girls, this is very sad. And then many people living in Slovenia, we have some refugees, automatically assume that they are potentially prostitutes. You know, many of them were offered jobs in nightclubs and so on and so on. This is not your problem, this is our problem. You know, remember that in Western Europe. It's a more refined racism, but it's also racism.
It was nice, and we have emails and so on to be in contact. Thank you. Thank you so much. We will stay in touch with you. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you, you. Thank, bye you bye bye. thank you, Professor. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone. Bye bye.